Well, good morning. I don't know if you uh, realize it, but we are in the last days. The last days of what, you may ask? Last days of the Olympics. My kids are awfully glad that uh, they're just about over. The last days of communism. Boy, I hope so. Last days of the 20th century. You guys realize that in seven and a half more years, it'll be the year 2000. Isn't that incredible to contemplate? Well, we're in the last days of all of these things, but we are also in the last days of this very earth. Our Lord Jesus told us what it would be like in our day. He said there'd be wars and rumors of wars. There would be earthquakes and famines. There would be all kinds of political upheaval, uh, new diseases and, and, and plagues. Now, he told us this 2,000 years ago. And in the last 2,000 years, these things have been happening all the way through that time. But he also told us, as the end drew near, like a, a woman's uh, labor pains, these things would become closer and closer together, more and more common. And we live in a day when they just seem to be piling up on top of each other. You know, even 50 years ago, uh, two earthquakes in a decade would have seemed like a rash. Uh, 1906 quake stood out as, as unique well, now you hear the news of one earthquake, and that gets interrupted to tell you about another major earthquake that's happening someplace else. War is spreading like wildfire through the former Soviet Union. The, the continent of Africa continues to burn with political and military violence. And we've almost become immune to news of famine and new diseases. I mean, they just become so common. You know, the contractions are getting closer and closer together. Another thing Jesus said was that in those days, because of the increase in wickedness, people's love would grow cold. You know, the normal affection that bonds families and society together seems to be disappearing. Fathers sexually abuse their daughters. Mothers kill their own unborn babies. Husbands and wives turn on each other. Uh, divorce at the slightest provocation. Children murder their parents. Uh, in our society, people commit violent mayhem just for the sport of it. Can anybody really doubt that we are in the days that Jesus was talking about? But about 600 years before Jesus, the prophet Daniel told us the same stuff. In fact, when Jesus is telling us in Matthew 24, he quotes Daniel. And says this, we're talking about the same thing, the same period of time here. See, the book of Daniel was written specifically for us in our day. The prophecies that make up about half of the book were written to encourage us, to help us understand what was going on, to help us see that in spite of all the what looks like chaos, God is absolutely in control. To encourage us that He is there in the midst of it. But also the stories in Daniel. Those are intended to show us, to be an example, to illustrate for us how we are to live in our day. Now those of you that were here last week when we talked about Jeremiah may remember that the story of Jeremiah pointed out that because we hold on to the truth in the midst of a culture that hates the truth, we are called to suffer. Because we're called to God, and God loves people, we're called to love people. And as a result, we get hurt. 
But because we're called to God, walking with Him, letting Him love through us, we catch a glimpse of His beauty and and His love, His glory, and we fall irresistibly in love with Him, knowing Him, loving Him from now through eternity. Well, now what we have in the book of Daniel is a little bit more of the picture, a little bit more on how we can relate to people in the midst of a society that doesn't generally listen to God. So turn to Daniel 1. What I'd like to do this morning is take a look at several of the stories very briefly. We'll look as many as we have time for. I want to look at chapter 1 in some detail and then just take off from there and see how far we get. So Daniel chapter 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now the first part of this little bit of history we looked at last week in in, uh, the story of Jeremiah. We're still at the same time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was alive at this point. It's around 600 B.C. If you remember, it's 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the general at that point of the the Babylonian armies, defeated the Egyptian armies at the Battle of Carchemish, and then came down back through Palestine to make sure all of those former Egyptian territories knew that he was now in control. And that's when Jeremiah went to Jehoiakim, and he begged him to welcome the Babylonians, to to, to cooperate with them, to not resist Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim would not listen to God through his prophet Jeremiah, and so he resisted Nebuchadnezzar blew right through that resistance, took Jerusalem, and that's when Daniel and his friends, his cousins, were taken into captivity in Babylon. Now Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not to be confused with the bedtime story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebedjigo. Also heard it said, uh, Meshach, Yorshach, and a bungalow. But anyway, these four young men were royalty. They were princes. They were descendants of King Hezekiah, the great-great-grandfather of Jehoiakim. And these four guys were growing up in the palace, and they saw what was going on. They must have heard the palace gossip about what Jeremiah said to Jehoiakim, how Jeremiah told him, if you resist, all of the young nobles will be taken into captivity. And now they saw for themselves that God's word came true. This must have piqued their interest in other prophecies. A hundred years earlier, the prophet Isaiah told their great-great-grandfather Hezekiah that some of his descendants would be taken to serve as officials in the palace of Babylon. 
Now, the prophecies of Isaiah had already been written by this time. They were available to these young men. And now as they saw what was going on around them, they saw that what was happening was exactly what God had said would happen. But how unfair. I mean, these four kids hadn't done anything. It was their great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah, and his son, Manasseh, and their great-grandson, Jehoiakim, that brought about all of this trouble. These four young men hadn't done a thing. But still, they are the ones that get dragged out of their homes, away from their mothers and fathers, taken off to be slaves in a foreign country. How unfair. But that's how life is. If you remember when we were looking at the life of Manasseh, we saw that sins, our sins, affect others. And others' sins affect others us. See, it's not your fault that your parents split up when you were a teenager, but you still bear the scars. It's not your fault that you were abused, but you still live with the pain. It's not your fault that you inherited spiritual and physical weaknesses, but they're still a part of your lives. All of us have been profoundly affected by others' sins. All of us have weaknesses, have confusions, have hurts and wounds that aren't our fault. But like we saw in the story of Joseph, we can't control our circumstances all the time. And we're not always responsible for our circumstances, but we are responsible for our responses. And the response we see from Daniel, just like the response from Joseph, is in the midst of all this, he turns to God rather than against God. And as a result, he has the opportunity to see that what man intended for evil, God in his goodness and his wisdom and his love uses for good. In the same way, in the midst of your unfair circumstances, you have the opportunity to turn to God, to trust him in his sovereignty, to use your fear, to take your wounds, and to show you things you would never have had any other way to see. To demonstrate His faithfulness in the midst of your situation. Now Daniel and his cousins are in Babylon, studying at Babylonia State University. They're being taught the wisdom and philosophy of Babylon. They're studying Babylonian science and religion and history. Realize that the sciences and the philosophies of Babylon were based on the worship of false gods and on occult practices. In fact, the other word for Babylonian is Chaldean. The word Chaldean also means magician or sorcerer because the true Chaldeans, the true Babylonians, were practicers of the magic arts. So this education that Daniel and his friends were getting was in a thoroughly godless system. And on top of that... The Babylonians took away their names, their Hebrew names, which each contained part of the name of the true God, either El, as in Daniel, or Mishael, or Yahweh, as in Mananiah, or Azariah. They took these names away and gave them Babylonian names that had the names of Babylonian gods in them. Now, how could they put up with this? Why didn't they object or refuse? Well, because they knew that this really wasn't the issue. It really ultimately didn't matter. They could be taught the wisdom of man and see how foolish it was because they knew the truth. 
They could hand in papers that said, well, according to your theory, this is what you would expect. And they could work all of the, do all the study and answer all the quizzes without having to embrace it for themselves. They could take what was good, reject, throw out what was bad. But this is hard. This is really painful to always have to be struggling with what's your top. But they could do it. And in the process, they began to grow in wisdom and begin to understand the feelings and the hearts, the dreams and the longings of the people around them, of the Babylonians. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer, was an expert on Norse mythology. Now, he was eminently aware that uh, this was a false religion, that these Norse people lived in, in terror of these demons, of these so-called gods. But as he studied these myths, he gained insight into the deep longings, needs, the heart of man. And as a result, he was able to articulate the truth in such a way that it touched those deep longings and showed how really God, the true God, is the only answer to that deep longing in the heart of man for immortality, for significance, for security. These things are met only by the true God. And Lewis could articulate it in a way that touched those longings and was understandable to people because that's what was at the core of those myths. Well, in the same way as Daniel studied the religion and philosophy of Babylon, he could grow in wisdom, never being shaken in his confidence and security in the true God, but seeing in the philosophies of man a little of their hunger, a little of their pain, a little of their longing. Now, this is the challenge for the Christian in today's educational system. There's a lot of good things to be learned, but there's a lot that's based on wrong theology, on bad philosophy. It's got to be sorted through. This is the, the challenge for our young people or for anyone who, who pursues higher education. It's a hard and painful process. And the challenge for us as parents is to teach our children the truth and to help them sort it through. And in spite of the fact that there's a lot that they're going to have to throw out as well as a lot that they're going to learn, in the process we want them to gain wisdom and insight into the hearts and longings and needs of our society, of the people around them. We don't want them to cut themselves off in fear and anger and hatred, but to see those hearts and to want to love the people around them. Well, the issue of the names was really a non-issue. It may have hurt their pride a little, but God had never told them to have these names or not have those names. Daniel and his friends were able to avoid letting their pride distract them from what they were called to do. Now, this may have seemed like weak-kneed, yellow-bellied compromise to some of the, the uh, pious Jews. I mean, these guys looked like they were too chicken to stand up for what they believed. If they had any guts at all, they had to put their face in the face of that Babylonian official, told him he had no right to ask what he was asking, that he was going to burn in hell and they were going to toast marshmallows while he did. But again, you see, these kids aren't any cowards. We'll see later in the story. They stand up willing to die. It's just that these young men obeyed God rather than their pride. Remember uh, last week, if you were here, the letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles, to Daniel and his friends? 
In that letter, he's passed word on from God that God had called them to settle in, to have families and try to love and to bless the people around them. Let me read just a little bit of that letter from Jeremiah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters and find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the people in the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for them. Pray to the Lord for them. You see, these young men were acting out of quiet confidence in what God was doing. They weren't reacting out of fear, like somehow God was losing here. They knew God had a good plan, and they weren't acting out of inferiority, trying to prove something, show how tough they were. No, they trusted God and simply obeyed Him. And to make an issue of these other things would have been to compromise that commitment to love the people around them. They were acting in obedience, acting out of complete confidence in God. And you see, what distinguished these young men from the people around them wasn't their names. It was that they knew how to love like God loves. That they knew the truth and they had complete confidence in the true God. Now in uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, back in Daniel... We come across something that they do feel the need to draw the line on. Let me read verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, And I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other men? the other men your age, the king would then have my head because of you. Then Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food. And then treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this test and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished. Literally in the Hebrew, they looked fatter. They looked fatter than the other young men who had been eating the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine, and they were given vegetables instead. Why, if these guys didn't draw the line on their education, or on their names, why did they suddenly decide to draw the line on this food thing? Well, the reason is, as we've seen, their commitment is to obey God. Their loyalty is to God. And God had told them to love and to bless the people around them. And to make an issue about this education and the names would have been a distraction, would have been a compromise of that priority. But now they've come up against something that God has spoken clearly in His Word on. God had told them in Scripture that He did not want them to eat these meats or to drink this wine. 
In addition to the, the dietary laws in Leviticus, you also have the prophet Isaiah, a guy that we have seen, these guys were already familiar with. In Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah is telling them why it was that they were taken into captivity. And he's pointing out their disobedience and disregard for the word of God. And he says in verse 4, he says, It was because you eat the flesh of pigs, and your pots hold the broth of unclean meat. Then later in verse 11, God accuses the people of spreading a table to false gods, filling bowls of mixed wine for the false gods. See, the Babylonians ate pig and horse and other things the Jews weren't allowed to eat. And their wine, before they drank it, was offered to their gods. Daniel saw in Scripture that God specifically did not want him to do that. So he resolved in his own heart not to. Daniel's commitment was to obey God's word. Having resolved not to eat this stuff, let's take a look at what he does. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't uh, charge right in and demand his rights. He doesn't suddenly belligerently condemn these these, uh, Babylonians for their disgusting practices. He doesn't put up a sign in his apartment saying, no meat eating here. He doesn't get nasty. And he doesn't put them down in the least. What he does is he makes the decision in his own heart. Then he goes to the official over him. And he politely, respectfully asks permission for he and his friends not to have to eat this stuff. Now, the Babylonian official was nervous. He said, basically, man, if the king sees you guys looking skinny, he'll have my head. Because he'll figure out that I haven't been giving you the food like he told me to. I can't do this. So Daniel appreciated this guy's position. He understood this guy's feelings. He tried to to understand this guy's needs. He didn't just blow in and say, well, we're going to do it anyway. What he did was try to find a solution that would meet this man's need while at the same time allowing him not to compromise his commitment to God. So he tells the guy, he says, "Let's, let's try a test. For 10 days, we will eat beans and grain, which is really what that word for vegetables means. We'll eat beans and grains for 10 days the end of that period, you take a look at us and then decide what you want to do with us. That sounds reasonable. So they go ahead with the test. At the end of 10 days, after these young men had eaten beans and granola, they were fatter than the rest of the young men. Now, in those days, being fat was a sign of God's blessing and, and health. And some of us are more blessed than others. I keep telling my wife, this is blessing, this is blessing. But at the end of the time, the uh, official looked at them and saw that they were healthier. And so he he decided to let them continue to not eat these foods that would have defiled them. And in the end, these guys, so impressed, found them ten times better than the magicians and the enchanters that he had been relying on. And from that moment on, uh, Daniel served in the court of every king of Babylon, all the way up through Cyrus, about 60 years later. Cyrus was the king who finally let the Jews go back to Jerusalem, just like Isaiah had said. See, Isaiah mentions Cyrus by name almost 200 years before he actually comes on the scene. Well, the... uh, That's the first story. And with the time left, I want to make a few observations about 
the next couple of stories. We don't have a lot of time, so I'll move real quick. I won't read them. But let me tell you what happens. In, in, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that really bothers him. So he calls all of his wise men together and says, tell me what this dream means. And they say, sure, tell us the dream. He says, no, you guys are the wise men. You tell me the dream. And then tell me the interpretation. Because if I tell you the dream, you'll just make something up. You tell me the dream and the interpretation, or I'll have you and every other wise man in the entire kingdom chopped into tiny little pieces. They say, hey, that's no fair. Nobody can do that. So the king gets mad. And he gives the orders to chop every wise man in the kingdom into tiny little pieces. The bummer for Daniel is that he is now a wise man. And so the soldiers, when they come to chop Daniel into tiny little pieces... Daniel starts to talk to them. He asks them why. And in verse 14 of chapter 2, we're told that he, told, he spoke to them with wisdom and tact. Again, we don't see a belligerent, resentful, rude Daniel. We see a very gentle, polite, respectful, considerate man. Soldiers decide to give Daniel some time. He quickly calls a prayer meeting. He gets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego together. And they turn their hearts to the true God because they know he's in control. See, we see this pattern of prayer all the way through Daniel's life. In the last story, the story of the lion's den, we see that Daniel prayed regularly several times a day. That was part of his lifestyle. gives us a clue to part of Daniel's character and his strength. He spent time consistently with God. But now they're in trouble and they turn to the one that they know is in control. God reveals the dream. So Daniel goes to King Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells him there in in verse 27. Verse 27, Daniel replied, No wise man or enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And a little later, Daniel says that God has not revealed this, this to me Because I have greater wisdom than any other living man, but because he wants you to know this. You see again, Daniel's humility and his desire to love this man, to bless this man, to share the truth with this man. And after Daniel explains the dream, Nebuchadnezzar himself exclaims, Surely your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings. He gives glory to the name of God. And he promotes Daniel to be the head of all of the wise men, the administrator of all of Babylon. Well, again, in this story, we see the respect, the respectfulness, and the helpfulness of Daniel, his his desire to bless. We see his dependence on God, that he turns to the one who's really in control. Chapter 3, we have a story that gives the answer to what would have happened had the official not allowed Daniel to to stop eating the meat, what would Daniel have done? Well, in chapter 3, Daniel's cousins, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, find themselves in a situation in which no compromise is possible. The king has given an ultimatum. He said, you bow down to the idol, the statue I've made, or you go in the fire. End of discussion. See, there was nothing for them to say, no way to make an appeal. And they say that to him. They say, we, we can't defend ourselves before you in this matter. They, they knew that the king knew better. The king had already said a few verses back that God is the Lord of kings. And he knew that as much as these young men wanted to honor him, wanted to obey him, they could not bow down 
to an idol. So they refuse. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we cannot, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. See, when there was no alternative, alternative, they remain respectful and courteous. They don't act hateful or resentful. But when it comes to choosing between obeying man and obeying God, they obey God and they take the consequences. They act out of quiet confidence that their God is in control. They trust Him. We know Most of you know the rest of the story. The king gets mad and he, he has them heat up the furnace even hotter. The soldiers who are standing there to throw these young Jewish men into the fire, they die from the heat. It's so hot. When these young men are thrown in the fire, the only thing that burns on them are the ropes from their wrists. Nothing else is even singed. When they come out of the fire, they don't even smell like smoke. Nebuchadnezzar is so overwhelmed. Verse 28 of chapter 3, he says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. He likes to cut people in little pieces. (laughs) But you see, the bottom line is his heart is now glorifying the true God because of the courage of these young men and the way they conducted themselves. Now, that's all the stories we really have time for. I'm sorry we didn't get to the lion's den. That's a great story. A story that really demonstrates uh, Daniel's consistent walk with God and his willingness to die rather than refuse to, to be loyal to his God. But I think we've seen enough to get the point. And what is the point? The point is that this is how we can conduct ourselves in our day, in these last times, as things continue to move toward the end. This is how we can live our lives. There are principles here that I want to point out from the lives of of Daniel and his friends. The first is that in our lives and, and in our worlds around us, things will often begin to seem totally out of control. We live in a society that's more and more antagonistic toward God, more and more uh, anti-God. We live in a culture that begins to turn on us more and more because we are loyal to God and we hold on to the truth and we begin to be wronged and treated unjustly and hurtfully. In the midst of that society, we can remember... Just like God had the book of Isaiah written specifically for Daniel and his friends and the others who were in exile. So that they would understand what was happening and see that God was still absolutely in control. And that that exile was only going to last a period of time, 70 years actually. 
And in the midst of it, they had God available to them to love them, to help them, to teach them, and to guide them. You see, Daniel saw that in Scripture, and he really believed it. And that was what enabled him to conduct himself with dignity and quiet confidence in the midst of his circumstances. In the same way, God had the book of Daniel written specifically for us so that we would understand what's happening in our day with wars and rumors of wars and people's love growing cold so that we wouldn't be confused and we would understand that God is absolutely in control and that these days won't last forever. Our Lord is coming again. But in the midst of these days, our God is available to love us, to help us, to teach us, to guide us. And as we read that in scriptures and really believe it, that is going to enable us to conduct ourselves with dignity and quiet confidence in the circumstances of our lives. We won't panic at what we see happening in our lives and in the world around us. Second thing that I want us to see is that just as Daniel was called to be a blessing to the people around him, so too are we. We're called to love the people around us. In in 2 Timothy 2, Paul writes, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them to repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See, and Jesus made it very clear. If we rage and act hatefully, speak hatefully of others, we are as wrong as a murderer. See, that shouldn't be what characterizes our lives and our attitudes. We've got to live down our reputation for self-righteously condemning our society and our culture and begin to see the people in our culture, their needs and their dreams and their longings, and learn to articulate the truth in a way that touches those real hurts and real needs, that is sympathetic to them and where they're coming from. That is what we are called to do. Even when we are are, are wronged because we hold on to the truth, because we won't give up what's right. Our response needs to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh. If we are unloving, even when we are right, we are wrong. This is true no matter the context in which we are dealing with the the evil of our society and the the confusion in our society. You know, we are Americans, and right now we have the freedom to speak out. We have the freedom to, to march. We have the freedom to lobby our legislators, to vote, to run for office ourselves. I personally am in favor of Christians organizing in order to more effectively retard the degeneration and disintegration of our society. Uh, Over and over in Scripture, we see uh, that a people, a nation that was moving toward destruction, turn back to God, and God delays their destruction. He heals them. And it's right for us to seek that for our society, out of love for our neighbors. And there are things we're standing up for. 
our families, uh, freedom of conscience and religion. There are things we're standing against. Pornography, sexual violence of any kind, wife abuse, child abuse, the list goes on. But even as we organize ourselves and begin to influence our schools and our government as is appropriate as American citizens, how we do it is critical. We must do it with, with respect for proper authority. We must do it with kind and generous tongues. We must do it out of the love of Christ, never out of fear, never out of an attempt to prove ourselves, out of inferiority, never out of malice or hatred. Again, when we act unloving, even if we're right, we are wrong. As we organize, we've got to be careful not to be seduced into giving up our spiritual weapons for the weapons of the world, for pride and power, which will only make us vulnerable to corruption and and, and manipulation. Our weapons are not numbers and wealth and influence. There's nothing wrong with numbers and wealth and influence, but we no more can rely on those than the people of Israel could rely on horses and chariots. Our weapons... Our prayer to the one who is really in control. Our God's word which leads us and guides us and penetrates the opposition. Love and integrity are our weapons. And everything that we do as Christians in our society, we are called always to bless, never to curse. At this point in history, we have not been denied the freedom the privilege to worship our God openly like they have in other countries during these last days. And though at this point we are not legally required to disobey God, that day may come at some point and we need to know how to conduct ourselves, how to respond to those circumstances. But even now, you, you may have someone in authority in your life who is requiring you to disobey God, to do something God has said not to do, or not to do something God has told you to do. A a teacher, a parent, a husband, a a boss at work, a, a, a government official may be asking you to disobey God. Well, in that case, the first step is to look at really what's going on here. To see if this is something that God has genuinely spoken about. Whether this is worth making an issue of. Or whether it's just your pride and your American independence that's being pinched. And if it is genuinely something God has said in His Word, then the next step is to go to them. Try to understand their motive. Why they're doing this. Try to understand what their need is. And see if you can make a deal. Maybe your parent doesn't want you to go to that Bible study. Well, why not? Is it because there are other things you should be doing during that time, like homework? Well, go to them. Talk to them about it. See if you can make a deal. See if you can do your homework at another time and still go to this Bible study. And they can watch for the next couple of months and see if your schoolwork suffers. And then decide what to do with you. Or maybe your boss is asking you to cheat for the good of the company. Why don't you go to him? And see if you can make a deal to see if God will bless your accounts if He allows you not to cheat. See, start by trying to understand their need. Start by trying 
to bless them. Don't just come in blasting. Try to bless them even as you obey God. But ultimately and finally, there will be circumstances in which no alternative is available. There's no way for them to have what they want and you to obey God. In that case, obey God. But remain loving, gentle, respectful. Take the consequences. If you lose the job, you lose the job. The relationship ends, the relationship ends. You fail the course, you fail the course. Like Esther said, if I perish, I perish. And as you respond this way, you leave room for God to act. For God to demonstrate His faithfulness in your life. And to bring glory to His name. Now, I don't know how He will do it. I know He'll do it. Daniel never knew how God was going to do it. In any one of the circumstances he found himself in. But in the end, in every situation, God demonstrated His faithfulness. And He brought glory to His name. You can count on God. He will do it. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to count on you. We praise you for the freedom that we have in this country. We value it. We cherish it. Because we want to be able to worship you freely and to do good without restraint. But Lord, we also acknowledge that whether or not that freedom continues and to the degree that it's limited even now, our loyalty is to you. We will serve you. But Lord, in the process, make us skillful at caring, loving the people around us. Help us never to respond out of fear or inferiority. Never to be hateful, condemning. Help us to enjoy our calling to love them, to bless them. Help us to be willing to suffer gladly for your namesake that you might demonstrate your faithfulness. Bring glory to your name. I pray even this week as we encounter things that are confusing and frustrating, that you'd bring Daniel back to our mind, that we would turn to you like he did, that we would allow our confidence in you to give us the quiet confidence to act in a loving, dignified, godly way. Lord, make us like Daniel. I pray in your son's name. Amen.